This is part one of a two-part podcast. Hi, my name's Ryan. I've been a supporter of Paul's for many years now. I wish to get the podcast and video creation part of the system we call Paul back up to full speed. And I think Patreon support is a big part of that system. Go over to patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. Make a pledge for each artifact that Paul creates. Again, the site is patreon.com slash Paul Wheaton. You can also find the link in the podcast notes. Enjoy the podcast. Okay. I think it's recording. I don't... Oh, wait. There's a red blinky thing. Okay, I think it's recording. Um, okay, we're going to... This is kind of the permaculture smackdown again. Only uh, years ago... Um, all I had to do was show up. Apparently, this time I'm going to have to like do things afterwards. And also, this time, we're inviting um, my Patreon supporters to participate. And so I have three of them on this call right now. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe you guys should announce yourselves. But first, Julia. You guys actually have to unmute your microphone thingy in order to be right, able to speak. Right. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Hello. So, Julia, I actually recorded a podcast with you at least twice before that I can remember. Yeah, we've talked about movies and stuff. Definitely. Right. Yeah. Right. And I visited your property. You did. You saw the most beautiful rocket oven in the world. <laughs> the mosaic and some pizza yeah with yeah. the mosaic right. cover right and then another person here is Katie Katie was here at the PDC two years ago or like a year and a half ago or so hi I'm Katie I'm still a newbie <laughs> but you've listened to most of the podcasts yeah those are yeah. great and um I'm not sure, but Julia, haven't you listened to like most of the podcasts too? I think I've listened to just about all the podcasts because I was working hard on it eight years ago, and okay. I've kept up since then. All right, all right. And then Ryan, did you want to say anything about who you are? Um, yeah, sure. Hi. I think I'm kind of one of the newer people to this community. Um, I found Permies. Uh, like maybe four years ago right when I bought a piece of property in California um, but I've just been kind of lurking for a long time I didn't know this was going to be a podcast today but I just figured it would be something fun to do on a Saturday afternoon I, I think it falls into the realm of uh, we'll see how it goes <laughs> I mean uh, I'm not sure I, I know that, that the pod people want more podcasts and uh, and and I'm recording it now, so you know I can I can do that when we're done. Send it off to be in the podcast stream. And then it looks like we have another person uh, who I'm not sure is 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 uh, a, a Patreon supporter. Elliot, are you are you on my Patreon or did you did you hijack this? Oh, I I was hijacked. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, you were hijacked. Okay. I was hijacked. Yes. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah. Well, I, I sort of get the uh, the friends and family Patreon status, I guess. Okay. Um, all right. Being married and all, you know. Okay. <laughs> all right. Let's. So, 
to start off with, um, I thought it'd be fun um, to uh, take a look at this lovely picture. And um, so there was a, a guy um, who said he, he, he wrote to Permies. He posted something on Permies and basically said something like, hey, can I bring some stuff over? And uh, um, I, I just – and the way he described it, like he said something about VHS tapes, and I kind of thought, oh, buddy, no. <laughs> but uh, um, eventually we kind of said, fine, all right. Well, he showed up with this massive mountain of awesome stuff and no VHS tapes at all. <laughs> and so one of the things – was was this planer and there were there were quite a few tools that had some rust on them and needed some love and uh, so we had a, a new boot start this week and so she took it and she uh, she gave it the love it was wanting and so you can see the uh, the all cleaned up version so there's there's oh. the all extra rusty version and uh, and then she uh, went to work on it and apparently how it started was is that um, a couple of guys have built some shelves because we're having a, quite the cold snap right now. And so these guys built some shelves down in the shop. And um, and they were talking about like, oh, you know, we want to sand it a little bit. And, and I said, well, rather than using a sander, why don't you use a plane? And then you could kind of, you know, smooth it out with a plane. And... Um, uh, so she was there, and she heard me say that, and then she found this plane and, and kind of cleaned it up real good and got it back into serviceable shape. I, I think it looks beautiful. Really nice. yeah. yeah. And then you get shavings. Can, are the shavings helpful in your rocket mass heaters? Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. Because <laughs> they come off as these little curly cues, right? And then you... Mm-hmm. And then you take the curly cues, and man, that's some of the best fire starter in the world. Yeah. So that's um, much better than sandpaper, which just oh. gets clogged up, and you have to throw it away. Well, yeah, sandpaper is also made out of glue and paper and stuff, and it's kind of like—I uh, mean, you use it up, and then you got to go buy more. I kind of right. feel like a plane is something you can sharpen and and uh, use over and over again. Um, you know, well, and a plane also will make things flat, whereas sandpaper will simply make things smooth. And um, there's a real difference between the two. Yeah, um, I uh, I just like the quality that you get from a plane better, and I I just feel like I can do more with it. And I think for most times a manual plane goes faster than even a even a power sander and so i and i just kind of feel like a this kind of manual tool is more aligned with our values uh, so i just prefer to see it use i mean we have sandpaper and the boots can use sandpaper and that's that's all cool and great. Um, here's uh, here's a picture showing that the sawmill is currently in action. Although uh, I know uh, when I went down there and said, "How's it going?" Then uh, they had stopped it to visit for a second, and I noticed that the belt 
was broken. So uh, we had to order some more belts, and uh, uh, hopefully we'll be back online on Monday and 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 creating lots and lots of new wood. Um, so here's one of the new boots with with the kittens that have now turned into cats. Um, here's uh, Lara out learning how to uh, plow one of our roads for for the snow. And then Lara with the cats. Now, here's the love shack. And we've got somebody currently staying in the red cabin. And it's cold enough that it's difficult to work on the greenhouse. So the greenhouse is on hold. And um, the idea was is that both the love shack and the red cabin need proper insulation. But since somebody's staying in the red cabin, then it's like, let's do the love shack first. And with a cold snap, the idea was, is like, okay, there's a rocket mass heater in there. Let's, you know, fire up the rocket mass heater and then reinstall the insulation. But it's kind of been turning into one of those things where, like, like you start to do a little bit and then you're like, but if we just did 50% more, it would be 100% better. And then, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, now they've, they've taken off the interior walls, the interior walls, and all of the old insulation. Um, I think they're going after the ceiling in there next. And um, uh, there's even talk about uh, doing something with the floors. And, um, and it, the project is now about three times bigger, but it's such a small structure it probably shouldn't take very long. <laughs> so, so they're basically rebuilding it. They're going to. Yeah. yeah. Well, kind of. Kind of. I mean, here you can kind of see some of the interior wood. And um, here's here they've taken out the insulation. You can kind of see the exterior wall and um, how it was a board and batten style. And then there's like this opening to the outside that was left there. Oh. And and so rather than like come up with a way to kind of cork that opening, they're going. They took all the ex, all the board and batten down, and they uh, fired up uh, the router, and uh, they're uh, reshaping the wood to use it for a board and batten style. Well, no, sorry, not board and batten. To use it as a lap style, so they'll hmm. they'll do lap wood. Um, so it'll seal up a lot so- better. That's going to be hung horizontally now instead of vertically? No. Or are they going to put it on vertically but lap it? Okay. I think they're going to put it on vertically but lap it. Um, but because if you, look at, if you look at this picture, you can see that the eaves are quite significant. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I mean, we're not concerned about water getting into the structure. So, like, if you were to put them on horizontally, it's like, okay, if, if water hit here, then it's not going to get in because it's going to run down kind of a thing. But I don't know. I'm, I'm leaving it up to Josiah to decide. Josiah is enjoying this project quite a lot. And so, Are they using for insulation? That is a great question. Um the standards that we have up at the lab are much higher than at base camp. And um, and we talked about, like, there's a, I mean, we used loose wool in the red cabin, and it is now creating problems. Um, so then we talked about a 
uh, a type of insulation that is that's sold as home insulation that is sheep's wool. Um, but it's like we'd have to order it, and we haven't even priced it, and we're ready to do the project immediately. Um, so then it's kind of like, all right, if we're going to go to the Home Depot and pick something up to replace the insulation in this, what's, what are they going to have that's the closest to our values? And it's probably, probably the rock wool. Yeah. Um, I mean, fiberglass sounds like it's made of a glass, but they're just using the word glass to mean plastic. <laughs> and it's like, so that's, you know, let's not use that. Um, so, yeah, probably the rock wool. Uh, but I think I think that if we had the time, and I'm not sure how much it would cost, then, but it's such a small structure, you know, even if it costs twice as much, it would be, like, not a big deal. But um, to order up sheep's wool. But this structure is this structure is never going to go up to the lab. So we uh, we don't have as strict of value. So for example, you can see it has a metal roof, whereas up at the lab we wouldn't allow a metal roof. Are you going to put a membrane in there too? Then? Yeah, yeah. There will be some kind of membrane, and um, it'll be on the inside. Um, well, no, wait, 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 wait. It'll be on the outside. The membrane will be on the outside. Um, and we, there were a lot of conversations about whether to use um, plastic or something similar. Or uh, we talked about using, we, we got in a whole bunch of craft uh, paper, and we were talking about using that as our um, seal. So, um, uh, so it'll be sealed and insulated. But um, the the lap is going to provide a little bit of a seal. I kind of wonder if we could have gone for a little bit of tongue and groove action on this and gotten an even better seal. But uh, I left it up to Josiah to decide, and he went with lap. So anyway. I have a question. Oh, go, Katie, go. Just as a newbie, I assume that lap style means that you overlap each board. Does that mean like front, back, front, back? Or does it mean like one over the other? It couldn't mean one over the other. It would be would walk down the hallway. Uh, can you describe lap style a little bit? Sure, sure. Um, so what we've done is we've taken a router to the edge, and we've kind of made it so that um, on each board um, – on, like, let's say we're looking, like, on the left edge and the right edge. So on the right edge, we've taken away about um, a half an inch of, of uh, material um, from the underside. So it goes from the right edge in, it's a half an inch, and from the back of the board towards the front, it also took out a half an inch. So on the right edge of the board, it's now only a half an inch thick instead of an inch thick. Oh, like now, little elves that fit into each other. I think I get it. Yeah. And then on the left side, we took away the same amount of wood, but it was on the top of the board instead of the back of the board. And and now all these boards kind of fit together in a lap. Well, it's called a lap. Thank you. 
That's that's the, the joinery. Uh, that's what it's referred to as is a lap. So um, this also brings up the question. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, it brings up the question of natural caulk solutions because I was thinking about um, what might what might re- what might replace it in natural situation. When you're trying to caulk something, um, I know that for the solar food dehydrator. We did use silicone caulk, and it's, it was, you know, a relatively pure silicone. Um, but we try to minimize that as much as possible. Then we get into the whole space of glues and, um, and that kind of thing. Um, we, we are doing everything we can to avoid all glues and caulks. Sometimes when you kind of need to cork something, we've been using cob, but a lot of times it's that requires you to kind of do the whole thing a little bit differently if you're going to use cob instead of something else. And then in certain situations where there's going to be growing and shrinking, it just shreds the cob. So it's like the cob doesn't do well in that scenario. So, could that be the same problem with beeswax or something like that? There could be that problem with beeswax. And and we do use beeswax for some things. And we're a little bit more open to using the beeswax. But even now, we are um, not as keen as we once were to use um, uh, uh, linseed oil. So while linseed oil is edible and things of that nature... Um, we're just we're just feeling like how how close it is like it's closer to our values than say paint, but is it is like using not using linseed oil seems like is even closer to our values. So that's we are kind of like trying to find ways to to even eliminate the use of linseed oil. And it's like there's going to be some times where it's a little bit of linseed oil or a little bit of tongue oil is going to be the, the thing that we're going to want to do. Um, another one that we kind of are open to, I mean, a lot of people talk about hide glue. Well, it's made from hide, and it's kind of like, yeah, but, I mean, there's a lot of things that are naturally occurring that are toxic. And I'm not, I, I don't personally know, because, like, you could probably find an MSDS for hide glue, but I kind of feel like, is there other things that are a problem with it that are not on the MSDS? So I, I have my concerns about hide glue. Um, then comes piney tar. And I, I kind of I like the idea of the piney tar. And there's things that you can do um, to, to kind of make a, a sticky resin with the piney tar. Um, now, now, granted, uh, this is kind of like where a lot of your turpentines and stuff come from, and those are toxic. But I don't know. I just I feel better using piney tar than hide glue, and um, I, I would feel better than piney tar than any of the other substances that we've talked about. But you're you're right. It's like how do we how do we seal something, or what is the substitute for um, those kinds of things, and I, and I gotta say, like, I don't, I don't, I don't have a strong win right there. And I, 
I kind of feel like that's a big part of everything that we're doing here is it's like, let's try this thing, which they say can't be done. So, for example, here we have an outdoor building, and this building is seven years old. And it was made clear by a lot of people that you have to paint that or you have to stain it or you have to put something on it or the wood will be rotten and gone in three years. And and I got to tell you, we were standing out there looking at it, and, and it's like, I think it's going to go another 50 years like this. Now, on... The, you can see on the right side of the building, that's the north-facing side. That's got some mold getting started on it there. But um, the, the side where you can see Lara is standing, where the solar panels are, that's facing east. And so the sun rises and hits that part of the building. And so the sun effectively sterilizes that part of the building. And so there's, there's not mold there. Um, and I think just by looking at this photograph, I think it's pretty clear that this wood is doing very well. It's not rotting away. So there's a lot of this knowledge, which is uh, probably referred to as common sense, and we are violating the concept of common sense by the standards of most people. And we, we instead of treating it, we went with... Um, uh, a larger roof line, uh, you know, pretty significant eaves. And I, I mean, does anybody doubt that this wood might last 40, 50 more years by looking at, just by looking at this picture? It looks good. Can you rotate the building 180 degrees? <laughs> we can, but I think we've got other things to do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, the miracle of a relatively dry climate um, and dry air um, is on full display there. That's, there's something to be said for that, because if we were in, say, I don't know, uh, the West Coast area of Oregon, where it's a little soggier and everything's kind of covered in a green slime all year, then... Um, I'm not sure how this would do. I think it might. I think it could do all right, but I am not. I am not certain. I'd be curious. Well, I think it would depend upon the type of wood as well, and that's one of the reasons where you know cedar might come into play. But of course, you're using probably pine there. Yeah. Right. That was nailed yeah. on site, and um, yeah, you know, a lot of those coatings are really designed to protect against UV damage as much as water damage, and um, you know, placing a building in shade or providing other ways of you know protecting it from UV can go a long ways um, towards making that wood hang in there, and of course, you know, and you you've gone through all of this Paul I'm just you know for a topic of conversation right that um, you can spend boku bucks you know painting staining preventing it from um, you know from anything happening to it or in you know 15 to 20 years you pop off all the sideboards and you go stick them in a hoogle someplace and you start over and um, you know which one's better that's a very good point because as long as they've never been treated with anything, we could easily 
uh, set them in a hookah, or we could even um, possibly use them for firewood. Absolutely. Yeah. And, uh, Paul, I think I know your answer to this, but would you mind explaining um, your thoughts on milk paint? <sighs> We've used it. Um, we're having relatively good success. Um, again, it's, it's, it's the same thing as the hide glue. I, I, I mean, there's a chemical reaction that's happening for it to, to work as well as it does. Um, and so I have concerns. Uh, at the same time, I kind of feel like, uh, I mean, we, I, I think another good thing to point out is that um, we did whitewashing here. And the way that whitewashing works is that you slather it on and then you let it dry and you slather some more on, you let it dry. You have to put on like seven or eight coats to get it to be white. And uh, we did it on a building. And then we also did it inside of Allerton Abbey. And all of it is flaking off. Even the Mm. stuff inside Allerton Abbey is just flaking off. Oh, no. And it's kind of like... well, what the fuck was that all about? We put so much work into that. That's not how we wanted to go. And then, um, and now people are saying, well, the lime that we used in that, and again, chemical reaction, you know, to get the to get the paint to stick. The lime that we used was a little old, and so it it might have because we're talking about slaked lime, right? Baked lime, cooked lime. The, 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 the lime that's been heat treated, that's, that's got a huge energy footprint embedded in the lime. And it's like, uh, but apparently, you know, if you use something that might be a little old, then um, its chemical act- activity is basically gone. So, um, damn. You know, there, there it went. Now, there, there are clay-based paints where there's nothing in it but clay. I would say that I like that because I'm going to be far more confident in it. But i got to say that, that the stuff about the milk paint, the uh, even the linseed oil, um, and uh, uh, the hide glue, um, and, and uh, the, even, even the whitewash, for all of those things, I have to say, I don't know. How how good is it? How how safe is it? You know what's what's the downside? Can we do can we do better? Now I do know that like with Allerton Abbey, there's a lot of glass in Allerton Abbey, and it looks really beautiful inside. And um, most of the walls in there are unpainted; they are just straight mud right out of the ground, just just the clay that came out of the ground. And, um, but then for that one cell on the bottom side, we did that whitewash on the inside to really brighten it up. And that was Ernie Wisner's idea. And I do think it helped a lot to really brighten that space up. But it comes at a price. And I kind of feel like, you know, I, I wonder if the price is too high. And I, I'm, because what we're shooting for is to have like this this thing that's much more natural than your you know uh, super platinum lead certified stuff 
I want, you know, we want to go for something far, far, far beyond that. And uh, and I'm I'm worried about these materials. And I, at the same time, <clears throat> I haven't done enough research. So uh, I guess the proper answer to your question is is I am also a nervous Nelly. I would like to have the answer to your question myself. Well, my my answer would be that, you know, you, milk paint can be indeed made with milk and hog's blood. I mean, that's why barns used to be painted red, because they could use hog's blood <laughs> to make the paint. And, um, and you know, because what did you have around? Well, you had a hog, and, um, you know, and you have to bleed it. So, great, you mix it in with the paint, you get red paint. And the kids um, weren't drinking that stuff like it was Kool-Aid or anything, so. No, I guess not. <laughs> and, um, you know, and then, gosh, you probably had a cow that was making milk. And... Um, um, all you really need to do is separate out the fat from the milk because what you really want is the casein proteins. Mm-hmm. And But now you still have to add hydrated lime, right? I mean, it's basically a different version of a whitewash. Um, and um, you know, it's a pigmented whitewash but with some extra bits in there to give it some different sort of protein structures that will help hold it together, I guess. And um, But, you know, hydrated lime. And, you know, looking around the lab or even base camp, I don't think there's a source of lime. <laughs> Correct. There's and, not. You know, and and so although it's it seems like a really natural, nice product. I mean, it can be a beautiful product. Um, you know, going really deep into it, you do wonder, is it the right, is it the best thing to use in that circumstance? So Katie's got her hand up. Maybe she's got the answer. Ooh. Oh, no. <laughs> I have a question. Okay. Um, so the the paint, you're saying it's flaking off. Um, what was going to happen besides flaking off? Like if it if it had been all properly limey, uh, would it have like faded imperceptibly? Like what what would happen for the good ending? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, I feel like. I feel like every, so much that we're trying to do is an experiment, and and uh, uh, both of you have been here to firsthand see that uh, there have been some experiments that have failed, and and it's kind of like we've got so much more to still try and figure out, and a lot of it is going to be with you know let's see how it does over the years. Ryan has his hand up. Maybe he has an answer to one of these questions. Ryan. Yeah, well, a different tack. I was wondering if you guys have tried Shosugiban at all. Man, I don't even know what it was that you just said. Um, it's it's basically charring the wood. It's something oh. they used to do in Japan. And then you can put that planer to work. So, um, uh, charring the wood... Is is something um, we've done some experiments. We've done a lot of uh, charring to make signs. We've done the wood burning, and when we expose it to the elements, it lasts about a year and a half, um, and then it's and then it's gone. Um, and now there's this there's you can't read the sign anymore. Uh, so 
Um, we have one sign that was put up uh, about two years ago, and it got linseed oil on it. And it was a wood burn sign with linseed oil. And it seems to be holding its char quite admirably. You can still read the sign. And so I think that's that's far better. But um, I know that there's stuff where people will, uh, like putting FIDS posts in the ground, they'll char the post before putting it in the ground. And um, after visiting with a lot of people that have done that, I kind of got the impression that it does add about 10% to the lifespan of the post. But it kind of comes at a big cost, and there's a lot of work there. And in the meantime, we've been through a lot of iterations of putting posts into the ground. I really like what we do now, like in the greenhouse. And I'm not sure if you've been keeping up with that, but in the greenhouse, um, we put like um, a foot of gravel in the bottom of the, of the hole, and then we put the post in, and then we surround it with gravel all the way up. Yeah, that's what I do now, too. It's yeah, so I, much better than cement. Well, yes, yeah, cement is a bad idea all the way around because it's going to um, uh, absorb the water, whether it's coming from the soil, and it's going to carry it to the post. Or the other thing that can happen is, is that there's water still in your post, and it'll absorb that and bring it back to the post. And it's just, you know, hold it nice and close and squishy. And it's like, uh, so, so cement is out. I also think that what Mike Ayler did is out, and he would um, uh, wrap like five garbage bags, those big black plastic garbage bags at the bottom of the post. But then if, if there's any water in the post, it just accumulates at the bottom of the post and causes rot. And so it's like, what? That didn't work out so good. Plus, you know, as long as the post can't breathe, that also is a different kind of rot. And so I, I really think that, I mean, of course, you've got to look at the $50 house and how it, it's, it, well, I'm going to say it is still standing. I mean, I was there like, I don't know, four years ago and it was still standing. Um, and at that point it was like pushing 50 years old. So clearly it's not a horrible idea. But I also went to uh, Glenn Congeser's place and uh, and he, who's doing the same style as Ayler, and then he had replaced two of his posts in his structure um, because they had rotted. So it's like I I kind of and then we did a thing for a while where we were uh, making a concoction out of uh, diatomaceous earth and wood ash and borax, and uh, and then we would sprinkle that into the hole as we filled it and then put a whole bunch of it right around at the top inch of the surface. But I think that the gravel approach is vastly superior. Um, I've, seen, I've seen a lot of other ways that people try to do it, but they, I, I kind of feel like they are all crap, especially when standing next to the gravel approach. Gravel's expensive. Do you guys have your own out there? Um, sort of. I mean, uh, there's uh, um, about a quarter mile away from the property, there's an old abandoned gravel pit. Um, but we Perfect. don't go there. 
just to be clear. We never go there. <laughs> but we, we have a couple spots on the property where um, we uh, uh, can have a lot of a kind of a rock that falls apart really easy. And if we just go digging there for whatever reason, it kind of ends up as gravel. We do have um, several sandy spots for sand. Uh, for different kinds of sand, and some of them have like a little bit more, like bigger chunks. But it's and and we we end up sifting it out. Like we've got this this spot that we go to, uh, where we call it the uh, the shitty cob pit. And if you if you go and you dig up this sand, it's got some clay in it, and then um, and and some rocks. But if you sift the rocks out, you end up with a material that's like, if you just simply wet it, it's it's a low-grade cob. And we can use it structurally for all kinds of stuff. And if you add some more clay, you can get a much higher-grade cob. Maybe even add in a little straw or other fiber aggregate. But, you know, a, a, a side product is the bigger rocks, which, you know, gravel right there. Now, granted... You know, we're not creating enough cob or we don't need enough of this cob in order to be able to get um, a lot of gravel. But um, every once in a while, like I think we went and got a big trailer load of gravel uh, this last year. And it was like 30 bucks for a big trailer load. Katie, you got your hand up. I'm filled with questions. If I have questions, I'll raise my hand. And if it's not the right time... You can just just skip over. But uh, it, would it be good to fill the holes in the gravel with the sand so that dirt doesn't take the place of it, or would that be bad because it won't breathe as well? Um, I would think that that if the post is going to be in a structure, then I think that what we would want to do <clears throat> is probably put a little cob on top of it to kind of make it so that you know stuff doesn't go down there. And so it would effectively, in a way, be kind of sort of sealing it. But Cobb does breathe a little bit. So um, I'm not sure if that answers your question. Another thing you could do is you could try putting, like, pea gravel on top of the gravel and then sand on top of that, and and that'll probably work out pretty good. Does that answer your question? I'm imagining that as... I mean, you're trying to keep these posts dry as you can, but under the ground, there might yeah. be water that just comes through because it's been absorbed in the soil up somewhere and it's coming through. And it might carry mud with it, basically, and leave that mud in your nice gravel spot. Um, but pea gravel would have the same problem. Like, then you would have you would have more spots. But I just was thinking, like, well, how, how can we long-term oh. keep that breathability? I'm, I was kind of thinking that you would have gravel all the way up to the top, and then in order to keep you know, keeping it from plugging at the top somehow or, or sending a bunch of material down there that might plug things up. Like, how might you seal the top? And so that's where I was I was putting pea gravel on top of the gravel. But you are right. I, it's going to depend entirely on, like, what your what, – what's the story? Like, if you've got a post in the ground that's going four feet down – What's what's that story four feet down? Is that is it is it muddy, or in our case it's kind of sandy? You know, it's kind of a sandy gravelly kind of thing. 
And so um, for us, we feel like um, it drains well, you know. And so then if we can shed water above the post, which is probably actually 96% of it, is that we're um, keeping the water away from the post. Uh, by and so the water is in dry, dry dirt. Then, then that, that's a, that's the the biggest biggest part. So all of our wafatis and berm sheds and stuff like that, it's it's like the post is in the ground, but it's underneath a roof which has a, a significant eave. And and so that's keeping the moisture out, and then the the dirt below it. For our case, for everything that we've built so far, the dirt below it was very sandy, so it'll drain quite well. So we're not going to have the problem of the of the mud kind of working its way into the gravel. But you're right; if you have that, that would be a problem. I I kind of feel like uh, is there a way? To make it like if we built a structure there, will the water or the mud eventually dry out there as it's underneath this this significant structure? And that's uh, you know for us yes, for you I don't know. I mean you're in Hawaii. I thought Hawaii was all this volcanic rock, so which drains really great, doesn't it? It's all place to place. It depends. But, yeah, most of the rock is volcanic. But there's other stuff in there, too. Okay. All right. So, pop in the stack. Um, uh, Katie, I answered your questions. And then, uh, Ryan, I answered yours. And then, uh, Elliot, did everybody get all their questions answered, or am I just off on a tangent babbling about things? No, this is awesome. I think we're good. Okay, I'm good. All right. All right. Yes, I did have a question. As okay. far as the is my microphone okay, by the way? Yeah. And and uh so this is a whole different person. This is Dominic who who's Dominic, stuck yeah. in after we started. I did, I did, sneaky. Uh regarding that milk paint question, why haven't you guys used um like maybe twenty five or fifty pounds of like porcelain on the last coating? of your cob ovens just to lighten things up and or the rooms in Ellerton Abbey. And you're saying porcelain. Yeah, just porcelain clay, like um, super white pottery supply store or something. Just grab some really light colored clay and then somehow bake it on. Just nope. slip. Nope, just slip. Yeah, just slip. Oh, okay. All right. All right. That's a, I, I had not considered that. I always kind of thought, like, in order to get the porcelain effect, that it has to be um, fired. And, um, and then it basically turns to kind of a glassy-like substance. But, um, but like in Allerton Abbey, the, um, the walls in there are just the color that, I mean, I think, I'm not certain, but I'm pretty sure that it came from our shitty cob pit, and then we sifted out the big rocks and kept the remaining sand and clay. Then we added a little uh, clay and a little bit of uh, straw. We may have even added, I believe, a little bit of horse manure, 
And um, so our final plaster layer is that. So it's not porcelain clay, but clay that we've pulled off of the property. Now, I think what you're suggesting is, is, hey, buddy, how about for that final layer you use a clay that's like a super-duper white clay, huh? What do you think about that, eh? Is that what you're saying? That's generally it, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that is a, a, a lovely idea. I mean, just a, a little bit of a super white clay, and um, we'll end up with much brighter, whiter uh, walls. And um, I, I love that idea. I think that's terrific. Um, I think I think uh, um, what we need is a is a lot more of. I mean, I do feel like the people that are here are coming up with a lot of stuff like that, and um, and we have other bigs in the world, you know, for natural building coming through from time to time, and they load us up with a bunch of stuff, and and then we go from there. But um, I kind of feel like. Um, when we go and, and work on something and we build a thing and we finally get it done, that, that like when the, when the experts come by or other people come by and we talk about what we're going to build, it's too much for them to wrap their heads around. And so um, it's not until we get the thing done that they can understand what we're saying we're going to do. And then, once it's done, then there's a whole parade of people talking about what could have been better. And, and I feel like that's, that's been a very good thing for us, because then as we move on to the next one, we can use a lot of those ideas. Um, but the other thing is, is that... Um, we, I've, there have been a lot of the, the parts of the two Afadis that we have built where I've said clearly, this is what we must do. And then the, the builders go up and they're kind of like, oh, Paul's a dumb fuck. He doesn't know what he's talking about. We know more than him. And then they do something that doesn't work. And um, a lot of times whoever's doing that, and, they, and once they get done, they realize that that they've made an executive decision that was a shit show. And um, a lot of times they just they just bolt. They just go because it's kind of like uh, they don't want to live with the shame. And, and it's, so we've got some of that too. But uh, overall, I'd have to say that um, we're, we do experience a lot of um, – and, and whenever I hear it, like when we were, when we were going into the love shack, there were a lot of people that said, why would they do this? And then I, I would say, I'm so glad you said that. And it's like, you know, because they didn't have one to look at to see how it would turn out. <laughs> so they were, they were building it from the ground up. And then <clears throat> one person said, you know, maybe for something like that, you should have hired a professional carpenter. And I said, it was built by a professional carpenter. But the love shack was built in one day, and actually, it was it was built by uh, two professional carpenters. And so, uh, so it's, that's just it's just kind of hilarious that you know it should have been built by a professional. Oh, it was. <laughs> well, then how did they make these mistakes? And it's like, what you you think professional carpenters never make mistakes? And so, you know, oh, it's 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 quite common. But the fact 
that they're going to they're going to upgrade it now and they can see the problems that are there and because we put it together with screws the screws just pop out real easy and we'll reuse the screws to put it all back together again yeah. so I, I kind of feel like we're, we do a lot of that where it gets built a certain way. And we're doing such big, innovative maneuvers where it's like, we're going to do 15 experiments all at once. Um, in fact, I'm going to ask each of you a question. And, and let's see if anybody's got the answer to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had a gal tell me that doing 15 things at once is unscientific that what you need to do is one experiment at a time, and then, you know, once you've completed the experiment and it succeeds, then you do the next experiment. Never do 15 at once. Can any of you tell me why you want to do 15 experiments at once? Well, I mean, what I would say is it doesn't matter how many experiments you do at once if you have good data collection, because that's the key. All right. Kate? Katie, your hand went up the second Julia started talking. <laughs> I Well, you know, the optimal algorithm for finding a number between, you know, 0 and 100, right, is to jump to the middle. And, uh, a binary search. Well, then halfway, halfway, halfway to get there. Yeah, a to, binary to search. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I think it's kind of like that. Like if you, if you were to do one at a time, that would be much slower. Um, and this will get you a bunch of answers. Now, it's, it's true you could muddy your waters by, like, messing your experiment up, but each, as long as each one has enough isolation for data, then you're jumping, you're jumping more optimally. I, I like your answer better than Julia's, but, but basically the binary search answer is my answer also. And, and now Elliot has his hand up, but just a second, Elliot, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, um, here's, here's my answer. We do 15 experiments. And then um, we, we encounter two problems. But we know that the two problems we encountered have nothing to do with, like, nine of the experiments. So it's got to be with these six. And, um, and then with each problem, we can kind of say it might have something to do with that or that or that or that. And then we can conduct further experiments, which could eliminate the problems or continue to exacerbate the problem. But we can then begin to narrow down... The, the, what's causing the problem? Where did the problem come from? What, what was it that failed? And yes, from what Katie was saying, uh, you know, it's about narrowing it down and, and doing it faster. Doing 15 at one time is so much faster than one at a time. I mean, would we have to build 15 Wafatis to get a lot of these answers? Or, you know, there's, there's going to be, I mean, if we have a universal success, that was we we did 15 leaps all at once this podcast is continued in part two don't forget go out to patreon.com slash paul wheaton and make a pledge for future artifacts